Hello everyone, I'm your host Joel Bryce and welcome back to another episode of Delta Waterfowl's The Voice of the Duck Hunter podcast. Today's podcast is a discussion that I recorded from my office this past October with Sean Weaver and Ryan Callahan of Meat Eater Incorporated. Sean and Ryan were in North Dakota videoing an episode for their upcoming waterfowl show called Duck Lore that will be airing on Meat Eater's YouTube channel in 2022. Like many of our listeners, Sean and Ryan took a keen interest in Delta's henhouse program, so they asked Delta's very own Matt Chenard, often called Mr. Henhouse, to join them on their hunt. Sean and Ryan actually installed two Delta henhouses in a nearby wetland during their stay. During our podcast discussion, we covered topics ranging from Sean and Ryan's early introductions to waterfowl hunting, to hunting dogs, to the actual duck, goose, and crane hunts they experienced while in North Dakota. We wrapped up the podcast with my favorite part of our discussion, duck trivia. We had a friendly little contest to see who knew more about waterfowl biology. Thanks for listening in, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to to Bismarck and world headquarters for Delta Waterfowl. Happy to be back in Bismarck. I've always liked coming here. There's always a lot of birds here. Yeah? Ryan, you been here before? Driven through. Driven through? Yep, this is the most time I've spent here by far and away. Well, that's good. That's good. Bismarck is not my home area. I'm originally from Wisconsin, but I think I'm quickly approaching that point in time where I've lived here longer than I lived, you know, where I'm originally from. Right. So it, it's it's becoming where I'm from at, you know, very fast. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah well, there's very... a lot lot to like about the area, I've found out. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So you guys both look a little bit tired, probably a little bit cold after today. So you're, it's been raining all day long. The core temperature is coming back up. Is sure. it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on the, kind of like you're, you described where you're from and where you've been from. I'm on, I'm on the good side of that equation right now. Yeah, so, well, that's yeah. good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it can take a while on a cold, you know, it's mid-October, rainy day. You guys have been out hunting. W- would you believe me that I said this was one of the worst droughts on record here in North Dakota? Oh, you know, that was a big, that was a big talking point before we showed up is like this year and a half long drought that's been going on was just ruthless and I was starting to wonder if, like, how are we even going to do pothole hunts? Because there's no, yeah, none of the shallow wetlands left. But yeah, no, it's been it's been amazingly dry. So try on this statistic: the the North Dakota Game and Fish Department, in addition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian Wildlife Service, they annually do ducks breeding, duck surveys, and wetland condition surveys. COVID shut down the federal surveys, but North Dakota kept doing their own survey. They measured an 80% decline in wetland conditions from this year to last year in North Dakota. I mean, that's just amazing. Snow-free winter, which is kind of nice when you live here. <laughs> but if you like ducks, a snow-free winter and then just no rainfall all summer long, it just doesn't add up to great duck production. Oh, absolutely. And then, uh, so what was the 2020 year as far as like, uh, what were your conditions? Yeah, not not tremendous conditions either. You know, okay. what, what North Dakota's experienced for many years in a row is abnormally wet conditions. If you end up in that... So you weren't 80% less of like 150% average. You were right. 80% less of uh, 
70 percent or something yeah like yeah no it wasn't it didn't go from great question didn't go from the peak to something 80 yeah. percent less it came from normal okay. average you know well to, your guys last big moisture was like a snowstorm two years ago like right now yeah right? It, it's been it's been difficult yeah the and you know if you live here um, you know, you learn that not all snow, not all moisture is created equal. Right. You know, we've had years where October, November, December just slammed with snow. January, it all melted, all gone. And so there's really no value to wetland recharge for that type of a pattern. And so for me, and I, if I design the perfect winter, it's just maybe a foot of snow, maybe two feet of snow all winter long, snowshoe hunting, just get out there and it's, and it's okay to live in. Then get dumped on in Brutal March, April. April yeah, you know yeah. that just sets it because those are going right into those basins, and it sets up good duck production. And and when you say basins, you're talking about um, kind of these big uh, glacial sinks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so stores yep. a lot of water for a long time. Yeah, well, you're looking at the the prairie pothole region, right? And so that's that's a glacial. It's a result of of a glacier that was here centuries ago, right? And when the glacier melted or retreated, it left, let's call them icebergs, scattered across the prairies, right? And so there's this flat ground with boulders that created depressions. And all those depressions then hold water. And so you get into a good spot in North Dakota, South Dakota, Canadian prairies, wetlands as far as the eye can see, and they're shallow. They're small and shallow and productive. And that's what makes this area just amazing for for breeding waterfowl in contrast to something like the midwest with ponds deep marshes not as productive and you just don't have the number of pairs like we have here you know that's north dakota specifically it stretches through so much of the state you know south dakota you could have a lot narrower band too of those beautiful wetlands you do you do absolutely absolutely hey so i want everyone to get to know so i think most everybody's familiar with the Meat Eater brand. I, I do want people to just get a quick update. Uh, Ryan, what's your role at at Meat Eater? Director of Conservation. Okay. Right, so that's yeah. a pretty simple title. Yeah. Um, and then I host uh, Cal's Week in Review, which is uh, I try to make it as short as possible, um, kind of roundup of conservation news and ideally some – uh, what you need to know and hopefully act on as far as um, what's happening in the political space that, that you should be aware of as a hunter, angler, outdoors person. Okay. Do you have a, like a, a regional emphasis or is it just you try to cover the spectrum of the United States? Try to cover national with some hyper-local highlights. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Now, Director of Conservation, that was your... Same title at First Light, right? Yep, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How do you like that? Um, boy, it's it's broad. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it's what I'm interested in. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I actually get paid to research and and read things that I'm genuinely interested in. So mm-hmm. that's fantastic, you know. Um, but as you know, conservation is also this uh, high burnout rate world, right? Like mm-hmm. um, there's a, this thing called like issue fatigue. Yeah. 
Okay. And I, and I'm, I'm just trying to like lay this out for people, um, and not, uh, sound negative. I'm actually a, a very positive person. Um, the, uh, conservation world moves at a slow pace and you can work on something, uh, like land and water conservation fund for, mm-hmm. for instance, you know, like been working on that since 1973 and, um, we just got like full and permanent funding, something that folks have been roundly asking for, for, um, you know, 40 years, basically, um, last year, two years ago. And, um, that it just burns people out like very well-intentioned, passionate people. Um, I'm sure Joel, like you deal with them all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. they you get a passionate volunteer. They can, they can move mountains. Um, but that passion, uh, it, it sometimes it's hard to get that passion to go the distance that it, that it unfortunately yes. takes. Right. Yep. So yep. that's always been the experience. And I think people want to win, right? You want to win. Everybody and, wants to win. And in conservation, there's not that many people that can say when they, when that retirement, they can and make this long list of all these huge wins. And so it's almost for the good of the order. And you're handing the torch on to the next one, and, and it's hard to find yeah. sometimes. Without passion, you know, it's you have nothing. And so I'm going to do a fist bump with you. If you love what you do, you never work a day in I, your I, life. I, I, I'm sure I'm jumping ahead, but I got to say, like, one thing that we did today, right? We we put out hen houses. Yeah. We'll get there, but go for right? it. Yeah. And that is, like, a tangible thing that we did today that – probably will have a beneficial result at, at, at a minimum. It's probably not going to have a negative result. New. And, um, I, it just feels good. Like we physically did something. Yeah. That, right. that will more than likely benefit waterfowl hunting or bird watchers or, you know, just, it's just a good thing. And, um, when you start talking about like conservation policy and, and big things like it, you got to have some stamina, right? And you like to go the distance takes, takes some stamina. You do. You do. Sean, how many hen houses did you guys put out today? Uh, we only did two today on the slough, like right there where we were hunting. Okay. So you guys just on average, you guys will have helped produce 2.25 new mallards per year with that hen house. Yeah, and that was uh, just talking with Matt about Matt Chenard about how much it really does increase nest success. It's like it's such an easy thing. It took us, you know, granted Matt had the materials kind oh, of yeah. set up, but yeah. you know, for us to roll, for us to roll the hen house portion and put them out all together was a combined like twenty five minutes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you, you definitely, you're the punctuation mark at the end of a very long sentence when you're pounding that hen house in. A lot of work does go into it. For sure. We'll, we'll bring in Matt. Uh, Matt's not here. Um, you guys have him just worn out, and he's going to go home and hang out with his <laughs> family tonight. Yeah, I, yeah. I told Matt, I said, man, if, if, if you're feeling worn out, don't worry about it. Like most folks really regret having us out at about the 24-hour mark. So he's, <laughs> he's stood up longer than... 
a lot of folks. Oh, yeah. Matt's a good sport. I'll go uh, back-to-back with Matt anytime. So, Sean, what's your role at Meat Eater? Um, duck nerd is one nickname, I guess you could say. But really, I'm a producer of the new um, show and series called Duck Lore. And that's a waterfowl-centric um, YouTube series that we'll be coming out with. That's awesome. So, yeah, that was going to be my next one. So, for all the listeners, Ryan and Sean are in South Central North Dakota. Right now, they're sitting with me in my office in Bismarck. They've been out here the last few days. One more day to go? Yeah. Videoing some waterfowl hunts with one of my coworkers, Matt Chenard. He's a senior waterfowl programs manager. And a couple other, I guess, uh, friends of Delta, Tom Hutchins, Ben Buntrock, a few other people that have been helping out. Sean, you kind of, you got us going there, but so you're out here videoing waterfowl hunts. And again, tell us a little bit more about the, about, about the show, maybe, maybe some of the principles that you guys hope to stand on and. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in general, there's like waterfowl just should be more celebrated in the content that is like oriented around it. Um, not to base what we're doing off of things that already exist, but I just think there's so much in waterfowl hunting that like kind of gets left out. For example, like today we had our crane hunt was like driving rain and they're not decoying well. And, you know, it's kind of to be expected in a 30-mile-an-hour wind and driving rain. And we turned ourselves around in the blind and shot them coming low over the back of the blind. And I think anyone out hunting would do that. Mm-hmm. Why not? It's a crane at 15 yards. At the end of the day, you get some great meat in the freezer out of it. But And my first crane ever. I haven't checked that box yet, so I'm jealous. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was a blast. And, you know, anyone would do that. It was like, it was so much fun. We had a roar of a time doing it. But, um, you know, that's something that would probably get left out of, like, most videos mm-hmm. and content. So, Yeah. No, one thing I've always liked, and I think most people do like about Meat Eater content, Meat Eater videos, is... I tell you the number of times I've heard this, or maybe even I've said it, is, you know, it's a hunt where you only harvested a bird or two or nothing, or you harvested an elk or nothing. There's always such a great story to tell, and that is always, that seems to be left out too often. And, I mean, fortunately, you guys have had some nice hunts, and so you'll have all kinds of content to choose from. Yeah, nice hunts is like putting it lightly. It's been fantastic. We've been spoiled. Oh yeah, like really spoiled. Yeah, yeah. the um, I, I I thank you for for noticing that. Uh, I I think that is a a huge thing. Like it's it's real content. Um, you know, like our founder Stephen Ranella. Um, that guy goes so far above and beyond to make things like painful and miserable just in case somebody asks if things are real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can be like, let me tell you how real it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, in just silly ways, to be honest with you. Um, that, yeah, I mean that, that is, it is, 
it is real stuff and what we're doing is that is just exactly what anybody can go out and and get into if if they put their nose to it you know so um but we had you know matt was driving around trying to find birds in a drought year Mm -hmm. pitiful year and all of a sudden you guys got a little bit of rain and he was driving around and driving around and driving around and saw birds, some birds in mm-hmm. a field and then went and knocked on the door and got permission and told them what we were up to. And then took another look at the field and was like, Oh, there's more than some birds in there. Mm-hmm. And they hung around for a couple of days for us to show up. Yeah. It was just like wild. And we had a, I mean, really a phenomenal shoot. It wasn't like limits on top of limits for everybody, but it was like we were amongst lots and lots of, like when the birds finally left, it was a noticeable silence. After two hours. It was like a solid hour and a half of like, there is a dull roar of speckle bellies in the background wow and but that that really was a testament to how well these birds find water like how quick they just like that they're yeah they're there yeah well today's wednesday and there was a good rain event saturday saturday and it did it was it's amazing how quickly some of those shallow depressions fill up now if you're looking at a you know a large lake or a huge marsh you're not going to see that bounce maybe as pronounced you have to look a little closer it's a, a rise of inches but when you look at those small basins it's it's amazing and and i have to tell you guys you know I, i've been at delta 20 years now and one of the most common questions or phone calls that we ever field is hey i'm coming out to north dakota to hunt when should i go and oh. i'll be honest with you this week that you guys picked would be the one i'd say don't come because it's usually the local birds have been uh, hunted for a few weeks, and you end up with that, I don't know if it's burnout or it's just kind of that lull before ducks come down. And then on top of it, because of our pheasant hunting season, residents have, I guess, exclusive access to state lands for pheasants. So as a non-resident coming in, there goes a whole bunch of public land. And so I'm really pleased the way that it worked out for you guys. And there was, it seems like there's some earlier cold weather coming yeah um we've kind of described this you know the farming practices um farmers have been really challenged by this drought and it's been prairie wide and so we've kind of wondered if you know poor crops meant less forage in the fields which meant a faster migration sure like you'd get uh skipped over yep they just kind of move on because you know a field that maybe sean gave them food for a week or something like that now maybe maybe a day maybe less one feed and they're yeah. just switching switching pressure yeah. can you know can make them jump faster and so we did notice a big shot of birds here just about the time that you guys well you just described it you know matt had a spot few birds all of a sudden there's a bunch of birds there and so it's it's been good timing for you guys and i'm, I'm really tickled for that oh it, it was i was talking to sean he's like oh yeah you know it's still dry it's still going to be tough and um 
you know, I'm your typical like new bird dog guy, right? Like I used to have dogs forever and now I finally have a puppy again. And, and I'm like, yeah, I don't like anything. I just need, <laughs> yeah, right. give me some bird scent. It's got wings. And we're going to have, yeah. yeah I'm, and I'm in. And uh, I was coming back from uh, helping a buddy with a moose and um, was driving across a chunk of Montana and could just noticeably see it was, you know, evening and mm-hmm. birds were flying everywhere. And I was like, ooh, like there's definitely something happening here on the, and this was like days ahead of the cold front that just, just started smacking everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was a good sign. And then, yeah, it just, just seemed like there were birds kind of rolling a couple of days ahead of that front. And then um, the rain came down over here and gave them something to stick around for, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So on this particular series of videos that you guys, or the, the hunts that you were on and, and videoing, you worked in, we talked about a little bit, hen houses into the storyline. Is this something, are hen houses something that interested you guys? How did you land on, hey, let's work hen houses into this one? For me, absolutely, because... In talking to people from Delta and friends, they seem like the most simple thing and tangible like Cal was talking about. Such a simple thing that like anyone can do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take special knowledge or really that special of tools. Like in general, if you have access to um, some metalworking tools of any kind... Like, you can make hen houses and place hen houses. And um, I don't see enough of them. Like, there's a, I've spent a lot of time driving through pothole country in South Dakota and don't see very many hen houses. And, you know, I also think it's something where um, hunters have this opportunity to, like, very easily give back to not just like the resource that they're taking from, but also the landowner specifically Mm -hmm. that maybe they go hunt on their land. If they get permission to go hunt a pond, um, you know, maybe that, maybe that landowner doesn't care about seeing ducks in the summer or maybe they do, Mm -hmm. but it, would it be that awful of a question for like to become a kind of status quo for people to ask of like, Hey, do you, you know, care if I come back this summer or this winter and place a couple hen houses. And I guess I haven't heard people having that conversation, but I think it'd be a cool one. No, I, yeah, I think the, the comment, if there is a conversation, it's, Hey, here's a pie. Here's some, my, my dad actually growing up in Wisconsin, this, this, I'm fitting the stereotype. Uh, people from Wisconsin drink beer and eat cheese, but my dad found this uh, farmland, and the guy was a dairy farmer, and he he secured permission for this marsh and this guy's pasture for a brick of cheese each year. That's all it took. <laughs> and then to see him take, you know, my brothers and I out hunting, I mean, the guy, it was over. Cheese and kids hunting, and, and you're in. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's you don't hear the conservation message between hunters and the landowner, it's just, it typically is, you know, most people think about hunting year round, I'm guessing if you're really into it, but don't often think of the conservation intersect. And yeah, hen houses, citizen conservation, it's something that you can do by yourself. And for those that maybe 
aren't familiar with a hen house, a hen house is like a wood duck box for mallards. It's a cylinder mounted over a wetland. And, and you guys actually, Ryan, you guys pounded in one in a wetland. It's not that hard. Yeah, we yeah we pounded in two on one wetland. And Matt explained to us, like, even, you know, he's found or that Delta's found, you know, two a wetland is a good number. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, on Delta's website, we have... Uh, kind of a best management practices guide, you know, air photos, potential locations, how to build them, how to take care of them, what to build them out of. And I'd encourage everybody to go do that one. And, you know, it's interesting, like a, a wood duck looks for a cavity, right? It looks for a hole in a tree to jump in to have a nest. And there's other cavity nesters, mergansers. Um, but mallards, there's nothing about a mallard that says, I'm looking for an elevated cylinder to jump in. That's not natural. They're just so innovative and i would imagine everybody has a story of some parking lot mallard or anything ryan do you guys have you have any mallard nests that you can think of a very creative um canada goose nest almost uh, knocked me off cliff one day really yeah (laughs) yeah didn't Uh, see that coming no no i did not and i was like i it was one of those things where I i was very high up on a precipice and um, this thing came blowing out from underneath me, and <laughs> and you know I was you know trying to make sure that I didn't fall to my death, and part of my brain was like I think that was a goose, and, I was like, <laughs> and got myself secure, and then looked down, and sure enough, there's a goose nest down there, and I was like, no way, you know, just like little like as razor thin a finger ridges you could you could find very high up i like climbing up on tall things just if i'm if i get close enough to it i don't got to go to the top type of thing not that i'm a uh, rock climber or anything but scrambler i guess but um my uh, mom is very very fond of a set of mallards that nest on her place every every year and um their offspring comes back and tries to nest too and she's i mean yeah she she is it's a springtime thing she she knows who survives and who doesn't and um yeah i'm absolutely gonna build at least one of these things out on the irrigation ditch that's cool that and that is cool and it's i I don't know what it is about a mallard i mean i've heard some of the stories that come our way you know nesting on rooftops of abandoned buildings seats of old tractors parked in the woods, uh, shoots of a, like a, like a grain auger. I mean, they just, we have one at our office. And if, for those that follow Delta on Instagram for the last three years, she nests in the bushes right outside our windows and hatches. I love the iron every year. Mm, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we just have to watch the dogs. Like, you know, I have my lab mm-hmm. here in the office right now. And so we really have to watch our dogs during that time period and get them straight yeah. in. Uh, so it's probably confusing for them. but That was one of my um, early dog training questions. Um, you know, like, because we always talk about, like, oh, have you ever shot a coot? And I was like, hey, I've shot a bunch of coots. I'm like, if you have a puppy, you end up shooting coots. Like, you got to you gotta get that dog retrieving and, you know, have that reward, you know, when you mm-hmm. do all the things and the ducks aren't flying. Right. And... Uh, the upland bird side of things, you will find these like late mallards in eastern Montana. I've found that are out in the grasslands when 
that uh, you know it's, it's relatively early September one grouse season starts, yeah. and you're out trying to find your puppy a grouse, and it will catch a mallard coming off a nest, and so you have this live mallard that's out of season, and you have your puppy that's as proud as proud can be. Look, Dad, and you have to like somehow like distract the puppy away from the bird and let the bird go and it's like this it's it's a hard kind of moral situation of right yeah sleight of hand type of situation yeah yeah i don't know but you're saying that you have a how old's your dog she's a year and a half now yeah i i remember i'm on my second lab ever of mine you know we grew up with springers and Mm -hmm. labs but i remember i just i obsessed over the first introduction to water. I'm like, watch me be the duck biologist who has a lab who's afraid of water or afraid of a gunshot or whatever. I just pained over that. How's that experience going for you, Ryan? Oh, it's really good. I have a very uh, sensitive girl, and uh, she actually just came into heat on this trip. So um, to <laughs> I went back to the truck to get her today. And she decided that she didn't want to jump into the side-by-side in the Can-Am, which is abnormal. And I was like, come on, come on, you know, but also wanted to get back to these guys and, and help and, and not just be gone mm-hmm. mysteriously while they're doing all the work. And I kind of was like, get in the damn... And she turned and walked away and went back to the truck and sat next to the truck door and looked at me like, <laughs> didn't like the you, rain yeah, or what you don't you don't yeah. talk uh, to me that way that <laughs> <laughs> it, it took twice as long because i had to you know get down on my knees and make up with the dog and she came over and gave me a little hug and then i asked her very politely to get in the can-am and i put her in the can-am and she was happy and then we went and she retrieved her first crane that yeah so now you guys have reached that mutual understanding i don't know you you like you are submissive. Yes, that's right. <laughs> by by another lady. So, um, uh, it, she. Other than that, things are going fantastic. Yeah. To answer the question, yeah, yeah. we're we're kicking butt, and she's uh, a wickedly smart dog, and and she's got an incredible mind, and and watching her hunt upland is is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then um, her retrieving drive on on waterfowl is crazy, and she and she can just like mark birds. So we've got a lot of things, a really serious head start on a lot of things. And I've had just been very very blessed to have some really phenomenal labs in my past, and I, I truly believe like this one's, um, it just she's got a head start on all those other dogs. And um, we just need to, like, it's just going to take some patience out of me to put, because of that head start, mm-hmm. it's going to take some real patience out of me to put the pieces together in a way that she wants them to come together that's going to make her, like, an all-time lab. So, What's her name? Snort. Snort. Shout out to Snort. She sounds smart <laughs> enough that I, 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 don't want her, I don't want her mad at me. Sean, duck guru, do you have yourself a dog? I do. I've got a new little pup. Her name is Case, and she is like a pup pup. Yeah. Um, few months old pup. Yeah. So, oh, come on. Yeah. Do the weeks, right? You got to be like, <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> it started, we picked her up at eight weeks, and so she's... Yeah. Like, 15 weeks. Weeks are starting like to blend yeah. together, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny, like, with kids. Yeah, my kid's 17 months old. Year and a half. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, at some point, it, you hit the year mark, and it's one year, two year. Yeah, my lab is going to be 10. And uh, once they hit this age, it just... Like, it feels like a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. Chester feels like a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like every day they just wake up and you just, I don't know, I do, I just cherish it. And I think in the front end, you, you're so consumed with, you know, the potty training and the chewing and the training and all that kind of stuff. And you think, oh, yeah, it's going to last forever. But, yeah, you get to that 7, 8, 9, 10, and you're like, dang, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get my heart broke real bad oh, here in a few years. And that's what you sign up for. I mean, it's it's just such a cruel joke, but... Also, you know, that 10-year mark, too, those dogs look at you, and they're like, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but, I mean, come on. What Get away with do? anything. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, w- I want to learn, you know, I think you guys are making a, a duck hunting show or a waterfowl hunting show, so people probably think, oh, these guys have been doing it forever, and maybe you have, but, Sean, like, go back into... You know, was was waterfowl hunting a family affair? Was it something that was handed down to you, or did you just get into it on your own? Yeah, so my my dad's always been a duck hunter, but um, what got me hooked, I can I can still remember it, like three back to back experiences. The first when I was nine, you know, I got to go hunting with him. I wasn't shooting yet, obviously, but he left me at home at my grandma's one time we're like we're visiting grandma and grandpa and it was snowing so i had to stay home and he went out and came back with like beautiful drake pintail some widgeon some green heads and i was like this is even the first pintail i've ever seen you know and i was so i was so mad i was like bawling my eyes out just upset and uh so then, you know, I was always going with him. Um, got hooked when I was 12 and got to start, you know, actually mm-hmm. shooting. And then it was only maybe, I think I was either 13 or 14. Got to go hunting with a, a buddy's buddy, pretty much. And he was, you know, he was a real good duck hunter. Like, really knew his way around the marsh. And he took us out in his nice duck boat and all that and... We shot, you know, pretty much a three-man limit of greenheads, and I was, you know, I was ruined. I've, I can, I can probably count on one hand, like the number of major life decisions I've made that weren't <laughs> correlated to waterfowl. Yeah. I've just yeah. always been ate up with it. I just love it. Yeah, no, it, it's it's that was my first hunting. You know, my family we hunted lots of different things, but waterfowl hunting growing up it's great for a young person i think it scratches a lot of itches but yeah it's it's been a part of my life and obviously working here at delta i guess it's a a natural extension of of a lot of my passions but ryan how about you um I, i'm gonna i gotta I have a two-part question for you but the first one is you know where did you come into waterfowl hunting you know honestly i wouldn't like describe my family as hunters like certainly not like how they identify um, but goose hunting on the Flathead River in Montana 
which is like where all of my hunt like young hunting memories are and that's what they deemed acceptable like this is what we we do for hunting and you don't ever shoot at a duck it's geese only and and um it, you know a lot of it i i would have just killed and uh to just to go right and then when i finally did get a go i was so young that i you know i couldn't actually hunt but i could go along with everybody and and then i was there and so much of it to me was like not hunting you know it was like looking out the car window and coordinating and eating breakfast and mm. and you know and and then the dogs were locked up in kennels in the in the trucks and the boats didn't get out of the trucks and then um you're glassing birds on the river and they would do these like big coordinated um pushes where you like boat shooters out to islands and then push gently push big flocks of geese over those islands and, and and it took serious coordination to to do it well and and these guys just just had it down and that was what they did and and um it was uh years of doing that to then be able to hunt and 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 actually pull the trigger and 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 get a goose and and do all the stuff and then i hear stories about it now and it's like Everybody still talks about you. Like we always thought you'd give up on that. You know, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like getting covered in water, having to sit, you know, have wet dogs sit on top of you, and all the stuff. And and it was it was it was uh, pretty cool. But yeah, it, it uh, definitely like just fired me up about everything. So yeah, I always say there's. I, I kind of look back on. Well, I'll chalk it up. I'll call it romance. There's this romanticism of waterfowl hunting or all kinds of hunting being difficult when you love to hunt the the toughest conditions the coldest feet the frozen hands the rain that you guys were in all day today those make some of the most lasting impressions and best stories and i i guess at my age i'm 47 i i feel that romance i don't have to reflect on it i'm i'm mm. I, I feel it in the moment but yeah looking back to my childhood you know using those old sorel boots that I mean, they didn't keep me warm at all, you know, like I suffered and it's a, sometimes oh, yeah. it's you amazing. You better suffer quietly. You better suffer quietly. <laughs> right. If you yeah. want to go you dare again. say you're right. cold. Yeah. 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 Uh, Ryan, I think you have a, see, Bozeman is where you live now, right? Yes, Bozeman, Montana. Yep. And, and when I say Bozeman and people hear the word Bozeman, they probably don't think duck hunting Mecca, goose hunting Mecca. And, and there is actually some decent waterfowling out in your part of the woods, uh, Sean, uh, when you think of South Dakota or North Dakota here, you think, oh, yeah, upland birds, waterfowl. Quite likely, people hunt something, you know, upland birds or waterfowl, and that seems normal. Waterfowl hunting in Montana doesn't seem normal. And so I understand a little bit of your background. You have a guiding background that involved big game, some waterfowl maybe? A little bit of waterfowl, yeah. Fishing. What What role, and I'm putting you on the spot with this one, but what role do you see that waterfowl hunting plays in i guess the overall types of hunting that are out there or maybe putting it a different way if someone lives out west or somewhere and they don't waterfowl hunt why should they oh i think 
you know, like one of those t-shirts, right? Like hunting is conservation thing. Like if you want to study conservation in the United States, uh, North America, um, you are going to learn about waterfowl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is a bedrock cornerstone story of conservation. And I don't honestly know if there's another conservation story out there that quite sums up what, you know, I I mean, honestly at that time, like people who shot for a living Mm -hmm. could do for literally everyone, like by conserving big, you know, redheaded birds that uh, folks wanted to pay for at uh, supper clubs and restaurants. um, You, there by like conserve and protect you know areas that hold you know hundreds of millions of gallons of fresh water mm-hmm. that then people in those cities can drink fresh water um that habitat supports an absolutely insane amount of wildlife that is not hunted but people you know value because that wildlife then travels to their bird feeders in their backyards um these systems, these wetland systems is what always comes to mind when you think waterfowl. Um, they benefit everyone. And when you look at that story that, I, you know, greatly, greatly condensed here, um, that is one that, that should be told and studied and um, discussed back and forth when you talk about just hunting in general. Mm-hmm. So I think if you want to hunt that is something that you really need to look at, right? Like I, I absolutely get and have lived like the archery all the time and the elk mm-hmm. all the time and the mule deer all the time, um, more than I can express. Uh, but waterfowl is definitely where I, where I started, and it's certainly where my mind goes back to when I want to explain uh, what hunting is and what what hunting can do. And I think it would, you know, do everybody some good to kind of go back to that root education and, and you learn so much. Just like, like Sean Weaver here, a duck nerd, right? He knows a lot about ecology. He knows a lot about geology. He knows a lot about weather systems and it all comes from a bird, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that has no boundaries. It moves a lot. It is subject to how people plant and how people divert water and, you know, what people put into that water. Um, it's, it's an endless topic that you can access through something that is truly phenomenal table fare as well. There's a lot of touch points, you know, there's it to ignore the duck. It would be to ignore an incredible, uh, topic you know incredible yeah, I mean, source the, education the like the two minute elevator speech on conservation like the easy stories are canvasbacks wood ducks like heck giant canada goose like waterfowl is just such a there's such a story and backdrop of how you end up with everyone thinking the giant canada goose is extinct and then now they're on every golf course across 
the Midwest and much of America. Like much to people's chagrin, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell this all the time, but my grandpa in, in Billings, Montana, which if you like Canada geese, my gosh, man, Billings is just inundated with them and, and much Eastern Montana at this point. And, um, I, we were at this restaurant and there's this little water feature outside the restaurant and there's this goose out there and, you know, I'm always watching wildlife and birds and whatever. And, and, um, my grandpa's like, you know, people would stop their cars when they'd see a goose in town. Hmm. He's like, now they're everywhere. You know, and I, and at that point I didn't know, I couldn't put two and two and two together. And I'm like, why would anybody ever stop their car for a goose? But <laughs> you know, I mean, that's yeah. the, he's like, there were, there were no geese in Billings, Montana to the point where if a goose landed anywhere near town, people would stop their cars to look at it. And now it's like, how do we get rid of these things? Yeah. 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 yeah there was a, just to kind of stick with that one in North Dakota, there's a, a, a project that I was working on in North central North Dakota and I had to get permission from a landowner, and I sat down with that landowner. He was just a, a wonderful guy. But we got talking at the kitchen table, and he was proud uh, and ashamed that he was a part of the uh, reintroduction of the giant Canada goose into North Dakota. And he pointed out the window, and there was this island in the middle of a, of a slough on his property. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, right there, he goes, is where we let the first pair go back. And he said, he, he says, shook his head, and he goes, I kind of almost regret it now, he said, because they're everywhere, right? In early seasons. And he goes, yeah, I'd like to talk to myself back then. But he was he was joking. But, yeah, yeah. But it is amazing. And I think that that continental resource, you know, spanning from Canada through Mexico, there's no simple issue. And so many pressures, you know, I think in the West, lots of public land, unable to be developed, different issues. And maybe it's my, you know, migration corridors that are the big issue with mule deer, for example. But yeah, waterfowl, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's one of the things that I like about this career field is there's, call it job security, but the job will never be done. It'll never be done. You know, you bring up like the West, look at the water issues the whole West is having. And it doesn't seem like those water issues are going away anytime soon. And, you know, Klamath is a good example this year. Like, that's going to have huge impacts on on waterfowl. Mm-hmm. It's going to have huge impacts on people. Because uh, Klamath is... Dry, bone dry, yeah. Yeah, Klamath is just there's nothing to it right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things that I like about, I think like you guys, I hunt many different types of animals, you know, deer, waterfowl, turkeys, uh, mule deer, antelope, uh, whitetails here. But what I like about, you know, if I lay out all the different types of hunting on a timeline, I mean, you can, here I can start with doves and I can end with turkeys in the month of January. For you out west, you can start with big game, end with waterfowl. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to, you know, if you love to hunt, you know, there's room for it all. You know, the, you know, big game, you know, I like the remoteness. I like the quality experience, but I have to admit, you know, there's an itch that likes to shoot, you know, fill a bag, do it again the next day. It, it scratches a different type of itch. And so I'd encourage everybody to hunt as many different things as possible. And 
value each of them for what they bring you. Oh, you know, what we've been doing, you know, I, you know, some of the ducks that we got the very first day weren't like the big corn fed mallards. They were, there were some local birds that were smaller. And, you know, I look at that and I don't go, oh, shoot. I go, oh, sausage, you know, Mm -hmm. and I love sausage. Um, (laughs) You know, we got speckle bellies um, that are phenomenal table fare. The, I, I do not know. I truly do not know if, God, man, these Canada geese that oh my God. we got two yesterday and one today that we put the smaller one on the scale today. Like it's noticeably not as big as the two gi- like giants that we shot yesterday. One of the guys that we were cleaning with was like, well, we should weigh that thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's not as heavy as the other ones. And it was 14.6. <laughs> and the, there was one yesterday that like, covered snort on the retrieve like there was no wow. seeing that dog. my dog's 46 pounds so she was carrying like well over a third of her body weight that's yeah did you get a picture of that i guess you did hopefully freeze oh, a frame yeah, maybe I hope, yeah. freeze a frame yeah, I, yeah. But I was like god this dog god dog's getting tired but <laughs> you know you got a third of your body weight in your mouth yeah well at least and that was on dry land yeah yeah so that's great you know i think most Young dogs will drag something back across the water, but on land, it's, you know, I think that's where some of the shyness kicks in. So, hey, he got that covered too. Yeah. And, uh, and that's pastrami and Reuben sandwiches. Nice. For nice. the most mm. part. Yeah. Back home? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, the processing to, uh, you know, to legally transport, been doing, you know, it's, you know, when you uh, process for particular things, you can do it in different ways. Mm-hmm. But I got to get it all home to fully process it. So it's all in bulk pieces, right. nicely labeled, packaged. Wings, heads. Yeah. Don't have a VRBO in Bismarck during <laughs> waterfowl season. We're going to clean it up, I swear. <laughs> but uh, it's it's probably not what you picture. No. Yeah. yeah. No, that's funny. Yeah, my my dad would come out with some friends from Wisconsin and they would take over a hotel in Steel, North Dakota that's uh, no longer there. They would do just horrible things to that hotel room and they always cleaned it up, but you know, cold and rainy, uh, you get back, you're cleaning your birds in the hotel room. But Yeah, uh, I've uh I guess that's just part of waterfowl and conditions when you end up with like the rain and snow type days. I mean, forget it. Nothing's going to ever stay clean. Uh, we I one time got a real bad snowstorm and all the decoys, you know, caked in ice. Mm-hmm. And that poor hotel, we had there, we had three rooms and all three bathtubs, you know, filled with decoys and hot water running to thaw everything out. Yeah, we yeah. You really hope they don't, you know, walk in at that moment. We used to stay at this place that, uh, it was a motel, like old school motel. And, and the back wall was against like this busy main street. And, um, before we'd go in, I'd, I'd let my dog out, walk her over to our hotel room window that I'd, I'd leave so I could, I knew it was ours and I'd sit her down right there and then we'd walk in and there were no dog signs everywhere. 
then I could walk over and open up that window and she'd jump through the window into the, <laughs> into the room off, off main street. And then there's a sign in the window that said, um, the sit or the, there was a sign in the, in the bathroom window that said the sink is for you, not your guns and not your dogs. <laughs> and I know exactly what you use that sink for guns and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that, that, uh, hotel and steel, it just came to me, uh, rest in peace. It was the lone steer motel. <laughs> so lone rest steer in peace, motel. lone steer. I remember you. Well, Hey, going to kind of moving in towards the end of the podcast here. I've really appreciated the time you guys have, have given us. And I know you're up early in the morning and getting out into the field again, one more time, one more time. But so you guys obviously are great waterfowl hunters. And uh, I'll let you guys, I don't, I'm not going to touch who's the better waterfowl hunter or the better shot, but hey, now you're in, like I said, you're in the headquarters of, of Delta Waterfowl, you know, uh, the oldest waterfowl conservation organization, been doing research since 1938, hunting advocacy, all that kind of stuff. I want to see who's the smartest guy about waterfowl. So, Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to. I feel like we're handicapped here. We've been running on like two and a half hours of sleep a night here for the last couple of days. But anyway. Yeah, we're going to do it. Yeah. So I'm I'm just trying to come up with, I want you guys to get these right, but don't, don't feel bad if you don't. I'm so close to it. So, so have you, Sean, we're going to go with you. Have you heard of the Prairie Pothole region? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. You kind of live in the Prairie Pothole region. Yeah, I do. So pay attention to that one, Cal. So do I. Um, So true or false, the Prairie Pothole region makes up approximately 1.1% of the North American landmass. So on a given year, the PPR can produce, this is true or false, on a given year, the PPR can produce up to 70% of the continent's duck population. True or false, Sean? Oh, it's it's true. I, maybe if it was false, I would think it's because that number could be higher, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it can be as high as 70%. It really can. And, wow. You know, we talked a little bit about you know, maybe off air, how the glacier, you know, created what's called the prairie pothole region. And, and it's just, if you get up in an airplane, sh- in a small aircraft, and as far as you can see, you can see wetlands. And it's amazing. And on each of those wetlands are many pairs of ducks. And that is just replicated square mile after square mile after square mile. It all adds up to, you know, up to 70% of the continent's duck population. So we're right on the western edge here in Bismarck. And again, welcome. So, Cal, name three of the five main jurisdictions of the Prey Pothole region. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> jurisdictions? Yeah, like states, provinces. Gave you two of them. Oh, states and provinces? Yep. Oh. Okay. So five main, give me three of them. North Dakota, South Dakota? You got those. Uh, Minnesota? Is that a prairie pothole region? It is, but it, it's not going to. I'm not going to call it yeah, Maine. Don't, don't, don't count it. Yeah, uh, it, it is, but in, under the ter- under the heading of Maine. Now you need to jump into Canada. Really? So uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So the three prairie provinces that make up the prairie pothole region in Canada. It's about two thirds of the landmass of the prairie pothole region fall in Canada: Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Oh, okay. Jump into the United States, about a third of the PPR, North Dakota, South Dakota, western strip of Minnesota. And Wisconsin, right? Not Wisconsin. Really? Nope, just that western border of North Dakota, uh, Minnesota, a little bit of Iowa. 
Mm-hmm. That one's often debated because it's been so heavily altered, but historically yeah. it was. And believe it or not, northeast Montana, the far northeast corner, also is considered part of the Prairie oh, Park. A little satellite imagery will show you that oh, yeah. there's plenty, on a good wet year, there's plenty of powels up there. That's yeah. sure. That when I got into like my Roman days and I got a, um, I hooked up with this outfitter, the first outfitter I ever worked for. That's, I mean, all, I mean, it was back before anybody had easy access to maps and stuff. And he mm-hmm. just had this unbelievable mental map of every little thing that held water. And I was actually, I was telling Sean today when we did some pass shooting, I was like, God, this is how I grew up. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, and, you know, we just, I grew up in drought years too. And it was like, we're going to pop over this thing. And if there's birds on the water, you know, we're going to shoot them. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's like, the, 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 there was no like, wait for green. It was like, right. if there's, if there's water in there, there could be ducks. And if there's ducks, we're going to eat them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you guys had that experience. I think it's human nature to overcomplicate things. And waterfowl hunting, yeah, you know, thousand snow goose decoys and this and that and the other. But every once in a while, it's fun to just grab the gun, grab the dog, and have a simple experience and, and cherish how simple it can be. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. I, can, yeah. I mean, one of the most vivid ducks in my mind ever shooting was a wood duck on a little drainage next to the railroad tracks with my brother just you know we'd go check it after school just yeah keeping ourselves busy you know and then it keeps filling up as the season goes along right Mm -hmm. as uh, migration comes through okay so you guys i am jealous i've lived here 20 years i have yet to harvest a white fronted goose you guys got into a, a good white front hunt as by all accounts shared with me so sean Multiple choice. Which is not another name for the white-fronted goose? A, speckle belly. B, speck. C, tule goose. Or D, barred goose. Which one of those is not another name for a speck? Uh, barred goose. Tule goose is a actual... The tule goose, right, is a like a small group of specks from... Is it Cook's Inlet, Alaska, that end up... In um, California, uh, in it, it is. Yep, the Thule is. A, yep, yeah. it's a. It's okay. it's makes up the the greater white fronted goose. Yeah. Yep. So good one. I I, I think that's awesome. I, I would have got that wrong. I yeah. know the California migration story, but I didn't know that that was because didn't didn't there's there's a yeah there's a goofy deal of like because uh, I heard barbelly today or yesterday mm-hmm, right? yeah and like you refer you know you'll say oh he's barred up like he's got good bars uh-huh but he's not referring actually. to like the little black mm-hmm. kind of bars on a white fronted goose's belly, belly right? yeah 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 the tule goose guys I'm cheating I'm reading this one this part this extra added trivia layer of trivia the tule goose is an actual subspecies of the greater white fronted goose in North America though its population is only about 7500 birds in the Pacific flyway yeah Ooh. that's the ones i was talking about there yep. is there you know i i'll think delta's own dr nikolai yep. for teaching me that bit oh yeah that's a guy full of a lot of information no, i so, talked to him for days yep glad you got to got to know him uh, first of many conversations okay cal this this is up to you now okay so you guys got into some 
Canada geese, right? Yes. So sir. we're going to go with true or false. Canada geese, in general, are a short-lived species. Few birds make it past the fifth or sixth year, even in unhunted populations. False. Right on. Right on. You're absolutely correct. But in regards to geese, like all the geese, they are short-lived when compared to uh, like snow geese. And I, I, I do think speckled bellies as well. I want to say Canada geese are the, the shortest-lived goose we have in North America. You know, I'm not going to disagree with you on that one, but this one, you know, there's always an exception to the rule. So the oldest known... You're is, talking about the banded one. Well, you guys can throw... You know, anybody that wants to make this guess. So the how old was the oldest known Canada goose? 18. No, it's... Uh, I want to say it's 27 or it's 25 or somewhere up in there. It's crazy old. So you got closer, 33 years old. Oh, it's really old. Yeah, that particular female was banded in Ohio in 1969, and she was harvested in Ontario, Canada in 2001. Good gravy. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. So, so was it, is it the, hmm. Is it the how old is the oldest banded canvas back? Do you know that? That one I don't know. Yeah, well, and and I'll that's why that I'm the host, later. so you can't ask me questions <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's I know it's, I know it's really old too, like way up there. Maybe yeah. that's the number I had mixed up. Yeah, no, that one is it's uh, that one. So 33 years old. That's you so know, old. That that actually surprised me a little bit, and uh, and and I think that one's that one's pretty cool. So. Um, Okay, that puts us back to Sean. Okay, true or false? Unlike ducks, most male geese, ganders, leave the nest and do not play a parental role once incubation begins. True or false? Mm, I'm going to go ahead and say false. False? Yeah. Kind of leading the witness on that one, leading your answer, but absolutely right, it's false. So ducks... Once that hen starts, uh, you know, sits on, you know, establishes a nest and sits on it, the male's gone. Yeah. Gone. Gone mm-hmm. from life forever. Canada geese, it's called biparental care, and it's a lot different. And so once that, you know, they, they do, well, the, the gander will help defend that nest site. And I don't know many people that want to, you know, provoke a giant Canada no. goose, a 14, 16, 18-pound <laughs> Canada goose. So they're wildly successful when it comes to defending that nest and then tending, you know, to the goslings. So now you know. At this time of year, you probably weren't in, uh, you might have been seeing a few family groups of, of Canada geese, um, you know, with, with your hunting. But a lot of that early season hunts that we start here in August, it's family groups. It's, uh, it's a whole different way of hunting. So um, that's awesome. Okay, so. Now, where are we back? To you, Sean? No, mm-hmm. back to me. Back to. Okay, we're back Just to you. Just be fair. We do need I, to be I, fair. I'm pretty sure I would have guessed wrong. You want to do this one, yeah. Okay, so name three species of ducks, Cal, that nest in the uplands. So nest in grass. Mallards. I would think gadwall. Uh-oh, that didn't look good. Um... You're good. You got two. Oh, shoot. Widgeon? Yes. 
Ding, ding, ding. Got you three. Because yeah. we're canvas back. They they meant nest out like right on top of the water, right? And they're like, yeah, out in the cattails. Yep. I'm not going to answer that one because oh, that's sorry. part of the next question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No mallards. Here's a is I'm here's just a telling blue the wings, audience yeah. that there's a big redheaded duck with a white back carved decoy on the table here that I keep staring at mm-hmm. with bright red eyes. Yeah, that's a beauty. It's a huge uh, canvasback sculpture, and this you know I grew up with wood heat as our primary uh, heat source, and that sat right next to the to the wood stove oh, my entire awesome. childhood. That so that makes it way cooler. Yeah, yeah that does. So my parents really gave me cool. that and. That's uh, pretty cool. Sits right, sits right in the middle of our podcast table right here. Mallards, blue-wing teal, pintail, lesser scop. That one's a, a wild card for many. Uh, you think of uh, shovelers, widgeon, gadwall, green-wing teal, black ducks. Long list. Oh, wow. You did a good job. Yeah. So overwater nesters. I think this one's a little harder, so we're going to limit it to two. Sean, name two species of ducks that commonly nest over the water. Canvasbacks. Um and ringnecks, right? You got it. Yeah. You got it. Redheads are another one. Greater scop, ruddy ducks, and mallards. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Meaning, especially when you put them in a hen yeah, house. Yeah, put them in <laughs> yeah. a hen house. They're, they're high over the water. Yep. Yeah, they'll, they'll nest on a muskrat mound. Mm-hmm, definitely. Geese will do that too, but yeah, you, you pick about anything, except this next one. Cal, give me two duck species that nest in a tree cavity mergansers oh you got you went right to a tougher one actually i mentioned that one before but you I probably know. knew that one wood ducks yeah yeah buffleheads are buffle another one yeah. oh, cool. do, do you got do you have another one sean um i'm not sure are golden eyes i don't know there that. you go i was yeah. just gonna give you a hint but you didn't need it that's a yeah. good one yeah yeah golden eye and whistling ducks yeah cool. oh yeah we don't have those around here, but mm-hmm. yeah, that one's that one's pretty neat. I, you know, it's uh, you know we did a study where we put hen houses out in uh, northwest Pennsylvania and southern Ontario, and it was a research project. You know, we know the hen house works so well in the prairie pothole region, but how does it work in other areas where the breeding densities of mallards are less? And we had a lot of wood ducks using the uh, the hen oh, house nice. in that part of the world. So we had mallards, we had wood ducks. You know, we've had uh, scop use them. So a hen house, you guys did it. It's like we mount them three feet over the off the water, and mostly that's because that three foot distance. As people, we can still see into that hen house if the wetlands frozen, mm-hmm. but it's high enough that a that a you know a, a raccoon or other terrestrial predator can't get in there. But Every once in a while, you'll get a huge bounce in water levels. And so the three feet also gives three f- feet of freeboard before the water, you know, uh, inundates that hen house. But right when the water's right up to the bottom of the hen house, we've actually had other, you know, diving duck species crawl right into those things and mm. use them. But you don't but want that anyway. becomes the problem. Yeah, because yeah. now a raccoon can swim out there, a mink can get out there, and, and it just goes, it goes on and on and on. So, a couple left here. I'm terrible. Who did I ask last? Um, it was you asked me about the divers. Divers. No, or the I tree nesters, to, and that I went to was the tree him. Nesters, right? And then so it was back. To it was you. a bonus, so it's back to me. Yeah. <laughs> back to you. Okay. Redhead ducks and wood ducks are com- commonly act as nest parasites. 
multiple choice. So when we call them nest parasites, nest parasites, parasites, do we mean that A, they steal nests from other ducks, B, they destroy eggs of other ducks, or C, they lay an egg in another duck's nest, leaving the host hen to hatch and raise the new duckling? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I would. I think it's A, but is it C? You want to phone a friend? You have it. Do you know? Let's go A. C. Ah, you had it. I did. Yeah, have it. it was. Oh. Yeah, you had. A, you had this myself. notion there. Yeah, yeah. That one. It, it's interesting. So yeah, one of the. So we have a big uh, canvas back study ongoing in southern Manitoba, Canada, for the last five or six years and redheads are sticking their redheads oh. will stick their eggs in those canvasback nests huh big time big oh, time that's cool sometimes they'll displace an egg to fit theirs in there but you know whether that happens or not what happens is that canvasback will incubate that redhead's egg hatch them all at once and then you end up seeing these mixed broods <laughs> right canvasback hen mostly canvasback ducklings sounds like a good children's book yeah. yeah, you know the one that the cowbird is one that you know that you think of when you think of the yeah. Western Plains and you know a migratory bird, you know where they it makes sense to drop an egg and keep going. But yeah, in the in, this, in the case of of redheads, they'll make their own nest, but they will gladly um, drop their their eggs in someone else and say, "Take care of it for me." I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there being like, "I get it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so I think I'm going to ask one last true-false question. Ryan, true-false, 10 one-acre wetlands can support 10 times as many breeding ducks as one 10-acre wetland. True-false. 10 one-acre wetlands can support 10 times more than one one acre wetland than one ten acre. So oh, then one ten number. acre. I think I think that's true. It is true. It is true. Any idea why? I I think it's just got to be a density thing. It it it's sure. Yeah, it is. It, it's surface area. You know, it's got to be on a biomass both shoreline, but then also they don't like to be too close to each other. Yeah, it's interesting. So I mean, this is the the fun part. This is the geek out part of it, right? Yeah. Where so. Ducks are territorial during the breeding season on the water, mostly of their own kind. So let's take a one-acre wetland where maybe you guys put a, a hen house on it today. And mallards, so one mallard pair doesn't want another mallard pair on that wetland. But that mallard pair is okay with a pair of pintails, a pair of blueing teal, a pair of shovelers. And if you think about it, you know, all the ducks look different they and if you pay attention they 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 use that wetland or feed differently you take a shoveler and they're skipping across the surface you take a mallard who dabbles it's bigger it can it can uh reach farther down into the bottom of that wetland to forage so basically it's kind of a resource partitioning that takes place and so they all all the different species feed on in that wetland differently so they're not competing with each other so you end up with mallards chasing out other mallards and so on and so forth. So if you have one 10-acre wetland, no. you have, that's it. You, you know, know what I call that, Sean? Hmm. Not putting all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right on. Don't put all your eggs in one 10-acre wetland. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. It, it's it's. Uh, there's one last one here that I really want to ask, but I I am struggling to find it. Um, so I'm just gonna let it go. I guess I'm gonna have to let it go. Oh, this one. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this one. Yeah. Great. I would wish I could find this one because it's. This is. Oh yeah. This it's a shocker here. Okay. So maybe I'll just read this one. We're talking about egg size. Okay. So the largest egg from a duck is from the common eider. Okay. The smallest egg out there from a duck is a green winged teal. So this is the shocker. So back to Sean, true or false? I'm going to turn this one into a true or false. Mm. Okay. As adults, canvasbacks average twice the size of a ruddy duck. We're talking about the size of the body. Okay. Yet the ruddy duck hen lays an egg that's 20% larger than a canvasback egg. True or false? Oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and say true. So a duck... That's wild. Yeah, so a duck that's, that's a half wild. the size lays an egg that's 20% bigger than a bird twice its size. That's true. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Ruddy ducks are kind of crazy bird as it is. They are crazy. <laughs> They're just a wild one. They're crazy. I've never harvested one. I... I Typically, when I see them, they're not flying anywhere. They've got a crazy fat color, like uh, almost blue. It's pretty strange. Yeah. Yeah, they're a little butterball, though. They're like a, almost like a circle. Oh, yeah, and the color, you know, they're just, I don't know, they're just they're just beautiful. Yeah, they're not typically hunted all that much. It's kind of like coots. I, yeah, I never see them flying during the no, day. No, they don't fly during the day. It's they're weird. just there. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You ever harvested a ruddy duck? Cow? Oh, very, very hard to say. I mean, we'll we'll say no, but just remember, like my puppy comment, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> spent a lot of days with no birds flying. Um, so why the disparity in egg size, and like what what's the advantage that do they have a longer nesting period? Do they have an are they an absentee parent? Do they like cover the egg up and leave? What's the what's the story? Why why is the egg so much? Yeah, bigger? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. My orientation that I bring to waterfowl and waterfowl science is almost always that of a management um, yeah. perspective, mm-hmm. and I've yet to figure out from a manager's perspective how egg size um, helps me build programs. So when this podcast is done, I'm going to look that one up. All right, I'm going to say canvas back. Uh, has a much shorter uh, nesting period and can bring a brood to uh, hatch at a faster rate than the ruddy duck, whereas the ruddy duck has that longer incubation period and those uh, embryos need a longer time to develop, hence the larger egg size. That's your guess, huh? That's my theory. Okay. Well then, okay. What's your theory, Sean? And then Don't. I'm going to do some research. And I'm going to get it. I'm going to get this back. That's to That's a great question. Yeah. It's a good cliffhanger for the audience. Yeah, awesome. I I don't think I have a theory on that. I really don't. Yeah. I don't know enough about like personally about egg size and its function. Yeah. Yeah. I I am I'm with you guys. I'm, I'm going to tell you my pet peeve on my podcast. Right. I, like I have a, a I always plug uh, my email address with his which is ask cal at the mediator.com my, my podcast is cal's week in review and uh my pet peeve is when people write in with an article and they say hey 
read this and let me know what you think about it. Or uh, read this and tell me what it means. <laughs> That's and, my pet peeve. Read and, this and tell me what it means. And I'm always like, you're almost there. Read it yourself. <laughs> you have the question. You, you have the, the article. Email. You yeah, tell me yeah, what you yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, so figure out this egg question. So I should say, Cal, uh, why don't you look up that question and, and get back to me? I, I will, for sure. <laughs> I will. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, I know there's uh, early actually, in my time. look it up and send him the research paper and say, let me know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> this much I do know. It's a giant dang egg. It's huge. And I think there's some pain that is experienced when you look at that egg there's some pain that's experienced getting that out of the body <laughs> absolutely yeah. so yeah yeah on that note hey we found a bonding moment there was none of us knew that one that's no a great one. no i yeah. don't know yeah. yeah that's awesome hey as we wrap up here i want to make sure um people let's just plug the show upcoming again here so you say name of the show yeah so it'll be uh on the meat eater youtube channel uh duck lore L-O-R-E. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, give it a watch. You'll get to watch us hunt with Matt Chenard from Delta in North Dakota. Um, a bunch of other places. We're, cool we're going to get little uh, tidbits, though, of what you're doing. What do you mean? Like if they want to uh, follow along, get get some ideas of what's happening. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, go on... Uh, There'll be all sorts of little videos and articles kind of popping up on TheMeatEater.com. Check out me on Instagram, Sean Weaver, DWC. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, I can't wait. How many episodes a season? Any idea there? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, doing six episodes. Awesome. So. Awesome. Yeah, I, I personally can't wait, you know, to see what your guys' take is on – on waterfowl hunting. Uh, like I said, I've enjoyed, you know, the meat eater product, the meat eater perspective. It's, uh, to be honest with you, it's a perspective that I can identify with. And if I'm one of those people, if I can't, it's just me, if I can't identify with it, I just not that interested in it. And, There's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Go, go find what, what you like for sure. Yeah. I had this horse that, uh, I trained it and I trained it and I trained it and, and things just started going downhill and he was, he was, became a danger to anybody around him. And I had so much pride wrapped into that. And a friend of mine pulled me aside and he says, Joel, there's so many good horses out there in this world to spend your time with that one. And so lots of shows out there and we all only have so much time. So, yeah, that's so true. look forward to this one. I do. Um, Cal, you gave uh, a, a way to reach out to you. Sean, you did as well. Do you have an email address? Do you welcome? Um, you know, for now, I guess, just send stuff to uh, it's the meat eater at TheMeatEater.com, right? Yep. That's kind of the everyone contact channel. So. Got it. Got yeah, it. If, if, you, if you have um, some uh, aching waterfowl question that you need answered to, you can always shoot me, shoot me an email at the ask cal at the meteor.com and i'll make sure sean answers it on the on the podcast <laughs> he'll ghostwrite go. it for you yeah. <laughs> yeah there we go yeah hey and then obviously if anybody has you know if, if something sim simpler uh this podcast delta's podcast has a email address podcast at delta org. i can send those questions out to these guys answer myself whatever it takes so hey i appreciate this i really can't thank you guys enough i've enjoyed it and uh, I wish you guys a dry and successful 
hunt in the morning. Um, looking <laughs> forward I, to being drier. Man, you might get shot around here if you're wishing for dry weather. <laughs> you, you might. It's okay. It's okay. When you're gone, we can turn the faucets back on. There so. we go. There All right. Go. Okay, guys. Thanks, thanks a lot. You guys take it easy. Thanks.